Hi, I'm Kasim Gaines, author of We Don't Need Roads, the making of the Back to the Future trilogy, and you're listening to Hydrate Level 4. Hydrate Level 4. Welcome to Hydrate Level 4. I'm your host, Peter. And today I have a special interview for you with author Kasim Gaines, as you had heard in the introduction to this particular episode. And I had an opportunity to sit down with him and uh, talk about his book coming out called We Don't Need Roads, The Making of the Back to the Future Trilogy. And I hope you guys enjoy it. Yes. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for um, you know agreeing to to speak to me uh, about your book. No problem. Now you're in California, right? Uh, Portland, Oregon. So uh, West Coast. Oh, Oregon. So so it's really early for you. It is. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you agreeing to speak to me this early. It's even earlier for you, so I appreciate it. No, not not a problem. Um, you know, you're the one who's taking your time to to speak with me, so I appreciate that. I'll I'll get up at any time anybody wants me to, uh, you know, for them to come onto the show. So thank oh, you well, again. I appreciate it. Uh, so you, you're joining me uh, today to to speak about your book. Uh, we don't need roads. The making of the Back to the Future trilogy. Um, it's c- coming uh, about a little over a week before the 30th anniversary of the Back to the Future movie, the first one. Um, and as I understand it, your love for uh, Back to the Future manifested when you were a kid uh, at home sick. Can you tell a little bit about that story and who turned you on to the trilogy? Sure. So I was uh, in elementary school the first time I saw Back to the Future. Actually, I was elementary school age. I wasn't in school because I did get home, uh, did get sent home sick. I had a little bit of a fever. And because my aunt worked nights, um, if I ever got sent home sick, she would be the person to pick me up. So while I'm having my chicken soup and sitting on the couch and trying to feel better, she goes, I think you'd really like to this film and she puts on the first Back to the Future and I just was in love with it before the movie even came on just looking at the VHS box and the cardboard box and seeing that beautiful artwork by Juice Trezan, um of Michael J. Fox and the DeLorean, the fire beneath his legs and the sky and uh, it was just really magical and after um, we immediately watched Back to the Future Part 2 and then Part 3 and um, it was just such an amazing adventure to go on that I completely forgot about feeling sick. I <laughs> wasn't concerned about uh, anything else. I, I just could not wait to get to school the next day and tell everyone about this movie that I'd seen. And of course, a bunch of people had already seen it, <laughs> a bunch of my classmates. But um, we had such a great time that next day and uh, in the subsequent days just playing back to the future like on the playground and we played ninja turtles and we played back to the future and um it was just a lot of fun did you ever mix characters up from ninja turtles and back to the future 
Yeah, I think we did. <laughs> I think we did, actually. I was, you know, I, uh, when we played Ninja Turtles, I was always Raphael. Like, I think that was the one that no one wanted to be. Um, and so, um, but yeah, but we, we did, I think. You know, it was just, it was such a great time, you know, that both of those things have, you know, science fiction elements to them and um, fantasy, and they were things that adults could enjoy, but they were things that kids could enjoy as well. So, um, I'm sure we, we did a great, uh, great adventure mixing all sorts of things up. Yeah, we're off to a pretty good start so far because um, uh, we, my son and I, we, we reviewed the Ninja Turtle movies and Raphael was my favorite. Um, oh, really? Oh, that's he, he was. Nice. Because I, I was kind of that kid where I didn't like the ones that everybody seemed to like. <laughs> mm-hmm. so maybe, maybe that's why. But um, Michelangelo it, was the one that everyone liked. At yes. least, you know, when I was growing up, I was the one that, you know, the pizza and the nunchucks. So what else? Right. What and else and he's there? funny. He's the funny yeah. one and he's a surfer dude. Um, with Back to the Future, I, I think it's it's um, hands down. Doc and Marty are your best characters. What are um, who are some of your uh, favorite you know um, side characters from the trilogy? You know, um, I think what's really great about Back to the Future is that so many of those secondary and tertiary characters are written so strongly. I mean, even a character like Marvin Berry, who's a, or uh, Mayor Goldie Wilson, those are small characters, but they're characters that are really um, present on screen. But you have to go with Biff, uh, you know, at least for me. Um, I think that Biff is so great because he's so stupid in a way and doesn't know that he's stupid. You know, he really believes everything. And like no one, because he's a bully and he'll, you know, kick your teeth in, no one's going to tell him that he's stupid. Um, but, but it's funny because like the, you know, the bully that's stupid is sort of a cliche, but, um, Tom Wilson plays it so seriously that it, it feels really genuine. It doesn't feel like a character you've seen before. And especially in back to the future part two, um, I mean, that's really Biff's movie in my opinion, you know, there's so much Biff in that movie and, uh, Tom Wilson has the ability to play so many different iterations of that character. And of course, Griff, um, his grandson, uh, you know, they're all the performances are really, really great, but I'm a Biff Tannen guy. Um, um, with, with Biff Tannen. Okay. So, so Biff Tannen's your guy. So, uh, can you compare him with the other Tannen's? You, you mentioned Griff, but what about Buford Tannen? Um, Maybe he's the most menacing, but would you still say Biff is your favorite of the Tannins? I think Biff is my favorite um, mostly because I love this idea, especially in 1955, where he, like, his main crime is that he's in love, you know, in a weird sort of way. I mean, he's he's this menacing figure, not as menacing as Buford, but... Um, but he's in, totally in love with Lorraine, like to the point of being like, you know, creepily obsessed with, you know, and dangerously obsessed with Lorraine. Um, and then you've got that weird element that you see in part two where he is, you know, where he lives with his grandma. And so right. like, you know, and his grandma's sort of like, you know, like, you know, giving him a hard time. So there's a little bit of backstory there that doesn't really um, have a, a chance to fully manifest itself. But there's a suggestion that there's more going on with that character. Um, Griff is just completely an idiot. Um, and uh, Buford is the most menacing. I would agree with you, but, um, but, you know, menacing, 
you know, you don't want to see anything bad happen to Dr. Marty. So, right. so having a more menacing character, um, I'd prefer to go with just, just a regular Beth of, of the tenons. Okay. Um, when was it that you decided to write that book, and what was the inspiration for it? The, um, the idea came about in 2013. Um, we Don't Need Roads is the third book that I've written. The first was a book on uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, which I loved as a kid. And the second book was a book on a Christmas story. And what I was really interested in, or I guess the thing with Back to the Future was that, number one, um, like most Back to the Future fans, I was looking forward to 2015 and wondering if we would have hoverboards and things like that. Um, and I was surprised that no one had taken a real serious look at the Back to the Future trilogy um, in a book before. There's DVD special features, and there's lots of things that you can find online, but everything's very segmented. And as I wrote in the book, one of the things that um, I'm always a little bit um, suspect of as a fan, I guess you can say, is when there are too few people that sort of have the same stories that they tell over and over again. Um, so we all know about Eric Stoltz being cast as Marty McFly first and that there um, was a difference of interpretation as to how to play that character. But I was really interested not only in why he was hired and why he was fired, but what was it actually like working with Eric Stokes? They shot for six weeks before they let him go. So what was it like, not just for Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale, but for Leah Thompson? What was it like for Tom Wilson? What was it like for these other actors that actually worked with, um, with Eric Stokes? So for me, there were still questions, um, to be answered about the making of this trilogy, even though um, a lot had been written about, a lot had been spoken about. So that was really the impetus for um, for doing that, uh, for doing the book. And you mentioned Leah Thompson. Um, did did you get to speak with her on like maybe did, did she review what what scenes she did with Eric Stoltz? Um. Yes, actually, I spoke with um, Leah Thompson for the book, and she had such a wonderful insight. You know, she knew Eric Stoltz before working on Back to the Future, and one oh, of the right. things that she um, she shared with me was that, you know, the Back to the Future experience for her is really bittersweet because she, you know, she really enjoyed working with Kristen Glover. Kristen Glover did not return for the sequel. She really um, loved working with Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz was fired from the first film. And so for all of the great memories that she has working on Back to the Future, um, it's hard to see those movies or think about that time in her life without remembering sort of friends that she was working on the project with who didn't make it all the way through the third picture like she did. Um, she also gave me a great story um, that she sort of sensed that something was that Eric might not be the best fit for Marty McFly from day one. Um, when they were having the read through 
before the movie and everyone's sitting around the table for the first movie and everyone's sitting around the table. Um, it's all over. You know, they, they finish reading the script and Zemeckis says, okay, well, thanks. You know, does anyone have anything to say? And Eric Stoltz goes, well, that's so sad. And Zemeckis goes, well, what's sad, Eric? And Eric Stoltz says, well, it's, it's so sad, you know, what happens to Marty? And everyone starts to look confused and doesn't quite understand where he's going. And Eric says, well, you know, he's going back to 1985 to live with this family that's completely different than the family he grew up with. They have all of these memories that he doesn't have. Um, it's a completely different world that he's in. Um, and so it's so sad that he's not going to be able to fully realize um, the rest of his life. He doesn't really fit in now with his family. And Leah Thompson said that um, you could just sort of feel the room uh, sort of bristle against what Eric Stoltz was saying um, and, and hoping, you know, and Leah, as, as uh, Eric's being a friend of hers, hoping that that wouldn't get in the way of his uh, performance, and ultimately it did. You know, Eric Stoltz is a very serious actor. He's a studied actor, um, and he really uh, took the role very seriously, perhaps too seriously, for um, a summer sci-fi comedy, and um, it just wasn't the best fit for him. Yeah, that's too unfortunate because, yeah, I know they, they worked on some kind of wonderful together. Um, mm -hmm. Yep. Who who were some of the other interviews that that um, you had that listeners can expect, and um, how difficult was it to get them? Um, I spoke with Christopher Lloyd, uh, Bob Zemeckis, Bob Gale. I spoke with um, uh, I spoke with someone from every aspect of production. So I spoke with visual effects, special effects, uh, stuntmen. I spoke with uh, lots of the actors. Um, the, the main cast and also uh, secondary and tertiary characters. Um, for me, it was important to get as many uh, opinions as possible and sort of put them in conversation with each other. Um, I was really concerned with telling a history and telling a story. So um, to that end, anyone who was there during the making of the films um, is a valid person to speak with because I was concerned with getting a sense of the set, getting a sense of um, how decisions were made, not just what decisions were made, but what the conversations were like that led to decisions being made. One of my um, the interviews I'm most proud of was with Sid Sheinberg, who was um, one of the executives at Universal at the time of the film's production, if you're familiar with the story on the Spaceman from Pluto story, he's one of the people that Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale and Steven Spielberg credit with um, wanting to retitle the film Spaceman from Pluto instead of Back to the Future. Oh, right. And, um, yeah, he's, he's that's uh, Sid Sheinberg. And uh, he also was responsible for Eric Stoltz being cast as Marty McFly as well. And so uh, speaking with Sid Sheinberg, who... Um, was instrumental in a lot of this decision-making, again, was another one of the reasons why um, I thought this book deserved to exist and why it would offer new information for fans because um, Back to the Future was so influential to popular culture and to cinema and to all of 
um, our upbringing, anyone who was a child of the 80s or maybe even a little bit older, maybe even younger, of course. Um, it's, it's such an important film series, and to have um, people that could really attest to how this film was made was important for me. Um, now, how, how long was the writing process? You said this started about 2013? Yes, so um, the book was written. Um, I started doing interviews for the book in early 2013, maybe February or March of 2013. Mm -hmm. And then I conducted my last interview, um, I think maybe January or February of 2015. Um, and I was writing throughout. I, you know, it wasn't just interviewing and then writing. Um, I would speak with a bunch of, like, you know, I have one chapter in the book that is, primarily about hoverboarding and about the hoverboard stunts and filming those sequences. So I spoke with all of the stuntmen and some of the actors that were in that sequence. And um, once I had those interviews under my belt, I could sort of start to write that chapter. So it was sort of an ongoing process in that regard. But it took about close to two years, all told. Um, did you get to speak with anybody in the... Uh, I suppose, like sound effects or anyone that worked in sound? I spoke with um, lots of people that worked in um, the music aspect, but not actually any of the um, ADR people or anyone who did the sound effects mixing, which actually is unfortunate because um, that's the one, the one category that Back to the Future won an Oscar for. Actually, <laughs> it won one Academy Award, and it was for... Um, for sound editing, I believe. So that's uh, that's the one the one gap. I did speak with um, people that worked on music, certainly. Yeah, Huey Lewis, I spoke with as well. Oh, right, that's awesome. Did he? Did he yeah, did that was a lot of fun. Did he sing for you? Uh, <laughs> he did. He did not. And I, no. I resisted the temptation to ask Huey, uh, "Hey, what's the news?" Did, I didn't do that. Either. It, it would have been funny if you told him you're just too darn loud. If he was able to sing for you. <laughs> Um, that was uh, yeah, that would have been nice. Yeah, because uh, for the thirtieth anniversary, I am I I enlisted the aid of nine fellow podcasters that are are also huge fans of the trilogy, and um, in one of the recordings, uh, it kind of came up about the the sound effects, and we were trying to think of how do you call that sound when the DeLorean actually goes into. Uh, um, travels in time, and my guest he referred to it as like the the sound of three thunder thunderbolts. And, mm. and I, I I don't know, and it never occurred to me like I never thought about that because when you hear when you think of Star Wars, you think of like the lightsaber or something like that. Right. Back to the Future, yeah, it, that that sound is very iconic, but. We don't know what else to call it, and and we're trying to think of like how did they come up with with something like that? Like, do you have any theories, or uh, what would you call that? Well, I know that um, for for the sound, one of the things that they sort of played with was actually like airplane sounds um, to sort of give um, a much larger sound to a much smaller object, you know. Um, it's, it's funny, when you think about the sound and its function in Back to the Future, it does so much to help move the story forward because there was no guarantee that Back to the Future was going to be a hit film. And this is one of the things that I really stress in the book. 
Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale had two other films under their belt, um, Used Cars and I Want to Hold Your Hand. And they were both uh, quaint films. They were both films that um, were well-received by the very few people who saw it. Um, They did not do um, very well commercially. And so one of the things that uh, Zemeckis really pushed for was having big sound, um, big sound effects that that added um, gravitas to what was being seen on screen, but also um, Alan Silvestri's amazing score is a big, grandiose score. Um, I don't know if you saw Jurassic World over the weekend, but I just saw it yesterday, and one of the things that I was struck by in, in that film is that Jurassic Park theme is uh, usually occurs over like a sort of like boring shot, you know, it's, at least in, in the new film. It's this, but it's this big swelling theme that makes you think that something more important is happening on the screen than what's actually happening. Um, so I think that, that the sound people on Back to the Future do a really good job um, in that moment that you're talking about with time travel, doing that. I mean, it, to me, if I were going to describe it, it sounds almost like... Um, like some like uh, just like this force coming out of nowhere. Like I, for mm-hmm. some reason, the thing that I'm thinking about is almost like um, like Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter. I'm forgetting which game, but like when the guy has like his you know his his arms together and like opens up his wrists and then it has this like blue bolt that comes out. Right. It's sort of this like um, just this like force of energy, yeah. and you can hear almost you know, like the fabric of the space-time continuum, you know, ripping, you know, that, you know, rip, 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 you know, the right, right. sort of thing. I like that. I'm hoping this makes sense for your listeners. I don't know. If, <laughs> I, I think they <laughs> will. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll throw in the sound effect, too, so. Oh, okay, good. That'll make more sense. But, yeah, no, I, I you know, I, I know exactly the sound effect you're talking about. It's, um, it's so iconic. And I will tell you this, too. When you think about it from a storytelling standpoint and from a filmmaking standpoint, when you're trying to save money, it's great because there are moments, <laughs> let's say in the first film, pardon me, in the first film, the second to last time the DeLorean travels through time. So not the very end with the where we're going, we don't need roads. But um, when Marty returns to 1985 and Doc says he's going about 30 years in the future um, before Marty goes into his home, you Marty's walking into his house and you see the DeLorean drive off into the distance and then you see a flash of light and you hear that sound effect, but you don't actually see the DeLorean travel through time. You just know that it happened. And that's what a good sound effect will do. You recognize those three hits as being the sound of um, time travel, even if you don't see it. So you're able to sort of save money on doing the effect. Right. If you get what I mean. Oh yeah. Um, you were able to provide me with a link to the first few pages of your book. And I, I didn't finish it because, you know, I didn't want to put myself in a position where I'm like, well, I'm ripping my hair out because I want to finish it now. But um, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed in the beginning of it where uh, you kind of mentioned how um, everything was going wrong for you leading up to an interview of, of uh, Robert Zemeckis. Can you speak a little bit about what you did and, um, and how you were able to kind of pull it together? Yes, um, it's the hardest part of writing these books is getting the interviews, you know, getting people on board, and especially if they are um, 
people that have managers or agents, you know, it's always clearing the gatekeepers. So um, I, I reached out to Christopher Lloyd's manager, and Christopher Lloyd's manager said, well, we will speak to you. Um, Christopher Lloyd will, will do an interview with you um, once you get an interview with uh, Bob Zemeckis. So I said, okay. And then I called Bob Zemeckis' person, and I was freaking out because I'm a huge fan of Robert Zemeckis. I'm a huge fan of his films. I think that he has done some of the films that have um, it's really – shaped, you know, popular culture. I mean, I don't want to oversell it, but I think, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, Forrest Gump. I mean, these are Back to the Future trilogy, of course. These are films that everyone has seen or has had have had really significant in- influence. Um, so anyway, I got an interview with Robert Zemeckis, but he's a very busy person, and I was told, you only have a half hour to do this interview. So that's no problem. I was ready to go. And my equipment that I used to record uh, my interviews failed me, actually. So I was freaking out. And um, it was not lost on me that I'm about to do this interview about a film about time. And now I'm <laughs> I'm restricted by time and time is running out and I don't have a way to, to do this interview. Um, so I ended up having to sort of jerry-rig something um, and use my cell phone to sort of record. And it, it wasn't a very good quality recording, but I was able to do it just for the sake of transcribing. But um, it, it was sort of an interesting anecdote for me to open up on um, because I just thought it was, it was crucial. Um, again, just sort of that theme of time and time running out and also the importance of these interviews and having to sort of capitalize on the time that you have. Um, so that was my, that's my Bob Zemeckis story, but he was great to speak with. He was so fantastic and, um, had a really great reflection of working on the film. Oh, that's awesome. Or heavy, as I should say. Um, <laughs> now, do you have any kind of insights on, on if, um, you know, cause I don't know the ins and outs of Hollywood, but do you have any kind of insights of whether this is something that, um, uh, another, if Universal would ever make a reboot or, or, uh, cause I know they've always said no part four, but do you get a sense that a reboot, a reboot may come in the future or a remake or something in that effect? I actually don't think so. And, um, it's funny because everything is rebooted nowadays. You know, we were speaking before about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, that has been rebooted twice or three times at this point. <clears throat> Pardon me. But um, I actually think Back to the Future will remain the way that it was for a couple of reasons. Um, first, it's such a... Because it's a film about time travel and it's set in the 1980s, I think it makes it a little bit easier to not uh, touch it and not mess with it because it's it's a period piece. I mean, it was, it was a contemporary film, but part two and part three aren't set in 1989 and 1990. They're set in 1985 as well. They're, you know, they're sort of, the film is frozen in that time. Um, The second thing is back to the future succeeds in large part because of the elements that make it so, distinctly 80s. Um, the DeLorean 
was a futuristic looking car that was a failed car, um, but looked ahead of its time. And so an audience of the 1980s could see this car and there's sort of a shorthand between the, the filmmakers and the audience where they go like, oh yeah, this car, of course, everyone thinks this car is futuristic looking, but you know, this car is a, a piece of crap. Um, I, and also I think the future element of 2015 um, is so, they just hit it so well the first time. And I don't know if, anyone at Universal is crazy enough to think that they could improve upon what was done. Um, and the first three films hold up so well. Um, and, and everyone at Universal, I think, has a lot of reverence and respect for those films, you know, in a weird sort of way. Even if you think about other classics, other film classics, Star Wars or uh, Psycho, or, you know, whichever genre you want to play in, um, there seems to be a continued respect for the Back to the Future films um, from a corporate level in terms of merchandise, in terms of um, the social media presence, in terms of the way that Universal treats those films in terms of ho uh, home video releases. I, I think that they have a lot of respect for what was done in 1985, and I don't see them um, looking to improve it, I don't think. That's great. Now all time travelers around the world can feel a little bit better now. <laughs> I think we've all I don't been... want to see a reboot of it. Everyone yeah. says that when they do these rumors, um, you know, I cringe. I just go, you know, please, please, no. Have you ever had any, because um, I know I, I have myself, but have you ever had any uh, fantasy castings? You know, have you ever felt like, well, if you were ever to make a movie, you know, uh, who would you cast in some of these roles who <laughs> uh, i mean yeah I, I mean i guess um but it always changes you know and mm -hmm. that's that's the great thing you know um the casting of this film was so right um down to the point where um and this is one of the things that i write about in the book too Michael J. Fox was a fantastic choice, and he was the right choice, of course. But even though he wasn't um, the first person cast, it still was an unconventional choice. You know, this was during a time when it was somewhat rare for sitcom actors to do major motion pictures. And, you know, sitcom actors would do you know, TV movies or things like that, but it was unusual for an actor who was actively on a TV show to be the leading man in a major motion picture. And so even, even that, um, you know, Michael J. Fox's performance surprised everybody, surprised absolutely everybody. I mean, this is someone who, while he was very popular from Family Ties, had virtually no film career. I mean, he had done two or three films that ha were unsuccessful um, and before Back to the Future. And so I think it's hard um, even now to, so, you know, for a movie studio to invest that much capital. You know, if they were going to do a reboot, it would be a huge thing because the Back to the Future trilogy is so popular. But I think part of the reason why that film was so popular is because Michael J. Fox was, you know, an everyday teenager at the time. He wasn't a big star. He wasn't a, a huge name. He wasn't a household name. Um, 
but I don't see a studio in 2015 or 2020 or whenever they were, you know, if they were going to reboot this, I don't see them being able to take that leap of faith and cast someone who, um, who isn't a household name now. I think that that sort of ruins, you know, it makes it difficult to relate if you're a kid. You know, I was familiar with Michael J. Fox from Family Ties, but only barely. I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't a, like a huge Family Ties fan as a little kid, so it was easy for me to sort of imagine myself in his shoes. Uh, now, um, it being 2015, and let's just say that everything that um, was depicted in in um, in the second movie was going to be real. What some of the items would you wish that you uh, you can get? I would love the ability to hydrate a pizza. Yes. <laughs> I would, of course, love a hoverboard because everyone wants a hoverboard. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would be horrible on a hoverboard. I would fall <laughs> off. You know, I'm not, I'm not a very coordinated person. I'm not an athlete or anything like that. You know, I, I'd probably fall off a skateboard. They, but they make it look so easy. Yeah. You know, I would need like they would have to make like an old man version of a hoverboard, like you yeah. know, like a um, like a hover round or something, like, like a tra- <laughs> training training hover wheels or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I'd have to like box, box me in or something. Um, so I would love to have that. I would love to. Um, I would not love to have flying cars because I just think what oh, boy. what a danger that would be if you had a if you had a car accident, you know, in the sky and mm-hmm. two cars you know fell down. And, um, there are so many things from Back to the Future, too. And I think the most important thing that I would love to have is the ability to time travel. I mean, I know that's from obviously from the first film. It's from all three. But the ability to go back in time and just change something about your life, even if it's a small thing, you know, a conversation you had, an argument you got into, um, taking, you know, taking uh, this highway instead of that highway, and then you end up getting late to work and getting yelled at by your boss or something like that, you know, just being able to go back and, and have a second chance, um, I think is such a, a universal idea. So that's probably the number one thing that I'd love to have from the Back to the Future trilogy. Yeah, a couple of things about the Hydrator. Um, one, uh, shout out to the name of my show, Hydrate Level 4. Yes. Yes. And uh, two, um, Albie from the Quantum Leap podcast. He recently recorded an episode with me for this 30th anniversary, and he told me a story about him calling Black and Decker once it hit 2015 asking for a hydrator. And he went as far <laughs> as um, filing a complaint, and they were very nice enough to do so. And they told told him that they will um, notify him by email once they, if and once they get a hydrator, to let him know that it's available to, for purchase. <laughs> that's so awesome. That's very cool. Yeah, very very cool. And that's why this and that's why this this trilogy, that's why this book matters. It matters because fans have been waiting for thirty years to celebrate. I shouldn't say have been waiting. Fans have been celebrating this film for thirty years. And the fact that uh, the the gentleman from the Quantum Leap podcast, um, you know, held on to that and, and called Black and Decker, as you might know, um, Mattel a couple years ago released um, a hoverboard prop replica. Uh, you know, the idea that these companies now that made a decision to participate in the movie, uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago are still being asked by fans to make good on the promise of those films is, um, 
is why why it's had such you know it's proof I should say that these films have had such an important uh, impact on our society. And um, and one last question before we wrap things up here, but what kind of collection uh, in toys do you have from from the movies? You know, I actually don't have all that much. I do have a, uh, a hoverboard replica. Oh, I'm nice. really, um, I really do. I'm starting to get into like fan art, so I actually have lots of prints and paintings um, at home with uh, like portraits of Marty McFly and DeLoreans, and I like seeing the different ways that fans sort of engage with the film and sort of show how the film um, impacted them and their creativity. That's sort of my, my current thing. To me, that sort of means um, a little bit more than uh, something that like a company has put out. No, no offense to any of the companies out there, but you mm-hmm. know, to me, I, I sort of like seeing um, the way the fans have made it their own, you know, right. in, including myself, the way that, um, you know, that's why I, I love as soon as I, uh, you know, heard from you about the podcast, I immediately knew I wanted to speak to you because of the name of your podcast. You know, I, I just love seeing the way that um, Back to the Future has continued to resonate with people. So that's sort of where I uh, spend my, my collecting energies nowadays. Are you um, familiar with um, the Michael uh, Matsumoto artwork? Yes. The Wait mm-hmm. a Minute? Yep. Yeah, that's that's an awesome piece of work. And for those that don't know, Absolutely. you know, I posted a, uh, I I ordered one myself, and I posted a picture of that. But it's I think that's a must own for all fans. It's such an awesome yeah yeah picture. And that's and it's so it's so cool because that you know so much of that um, the trilogy is visually iconic. You know, you can you can see something and just I mean even something as simple as like um, the little icon on. Um, little icon on anything the um like the flux capacitor or symbol or something like that you know but you can identify that as being completely um from back to the future just from noticing it or the, the icon of mr fusion or something like that mm-hmm. um they all they all just seem so specific or even you know that, that the tape that's on the time circuits you know right <laughs> um you know, it just—it it all just resonates, and I love being able to see the way people uh, interpret these images from the film. Okay, where can uh, listeners um, find your other your other work, and also how can they order the uh, "We Don't Need Roads"? Uh, "We Don't Need Roads" is available wherever books are sold on June twenty third. You can pick it up in a bookstore. You can book it up on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Books A Million. Um, they also have it in stock at BackToTheFuture.com, so you can check out that website. I'm sure most fans are familiar with it, um, and you can pick it up there. Um, you can also order that book or my other two books, Inside Peewee's Playhouse and A Christmas Story Behind the Scenes of a uh, pop, Holiday Classic, rather. Um, from my website, which is kasimgames.com, C-A-S-E-E-N-G-A-I-N-E-S.com. Um, you must be looking forward to the reboot of the uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited about the, the Netflix film. Yeah, that's so uh, such cool news. Yeah, I love the movies. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. I had such a great time talking to you about your book and, and Back to the Future. Oh, I did too. Thank you so much. I appreciate you waking up for me. Wow, I really, it means a lot. Thank you. 
I'd like to again thank my guest today, Mr. Kasim Gaines, and I will go ahead and put in the show notes on how listeners can find his book and find him on the social media. If you would like to email in with your thoughts for this episode or for any other episode, you can do so at hlfpodcast at gmail.com. Please like our Facebook page. Let us know that you're out there uh, checking us out. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at hlfpodcast. Until the next episode, I'm Peter, and this is Hydrate Level 4.